Well, welcome to Private Practice Podcast. I thought I'd let you go first because I wanted to see if you'd be able to cope with where we are in the sequence, what episode this is, whether or not for the listener this is the first one of 2020. Let's have a go. Good point, good point, yes. So I'll count you in. Three, two, one. Hello, listener. Welcome back to Private Practice Podcast Season Flow Episode 7. Uh, it is work, 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 work. It is 2020. It is the first, if not second, episode of 2020. You got everything spot on there. It is the second, but you gave yourself a get out for that. It did okay. Yes. Private practice podcast. For the benefit of the listener, we are in the new private practice studio in London. Both of us. Both of us here in the same room at the same time. It's kind of unnerving. For those of you reading along with us, Mm -hmm. chapter 7, pages 143 to 163. Flashbacks to school, continue. (laughs) In the episode today, we're going to be looking at autotelic workers and autotelic jobs. We're going to compare the elite, inaccessible surgeon in flow with the relatability of average Joe. Mm -hmm. We're going to look at the paradox of work, whereby people are more frequently in flow at work than in their leisure time, where they are generally not in flow, and yet they report happy face in leisure time and unhappy face in work. If not... Teary face. So either flow is all wrong, mm-hmm. or everyone is wrong except for Michaeli Chitson Michaeli and myself, Divine James Hall, only child, the special one. A mm-hmm. uh, couple of things to pick you up on already. <laughs> um, just because, you know, a lot of people don't enjoy work doesn't mean that everyone other than Michaeli himself and you, the Divine James Hall, uh, it doesn't mean that everyone would agree with that. Maybe many people do love work, many people find themselves in flow in work, and many other people don't. Well, what about this next one? We're also going to look at who is to blame, yourself or the job and the workplace? Yeah. Which do you think it is? Uh, it's always myself. It's always me that's to blame. For what, sorry? For what? Uh, for not feeling flow in the workplace? Yes, for unhappy slash teary face in the workplace, who is to blame? Yeah, I... Oh, yeah. Anyway, let's look at some. Uh, let's look at some background and some introduction, and, and kick kick it off. Kick off the chapter for us, James. Will you? Like other animals, <gasps> like the new private practice podcast cat that's in the studio with us. We must spend a large part of our existence making a living. Calories needed to fuel the body don't appear magically on the table, and houses and cars don't assemble themselves spontaneously. How much more do you want me to read? There's, oh, do you want me to read up to the Latin? <laughs> oh, no, it's not Latin, it's Italian. I'll, I'll read up to the Italian, uh, nevertheless. Uh, I'll do it. How much time people actually have at work? It seems, for instance, that the early hunter... <laughs> 
I just want to get to the Italian. Wait, wait, wait. Come on, James. Come on. This isn't all about you. This is about the listener. Um, well, it's, okay, so he's going right back to hunter-gatherers, but we can fast-forward a bit to the Italian. So, some of this chapter looks at, in terms of the history, it pretty much starts at the Industrial Revolution rather than hunter-gatherers and everything over the centuries beforehand. Yeah. Uh, so the industrial workers of the 19th century who were often forced to spend 12-hour days, six days a week, toiling in grim factories or dangerous mines. Not only the quantity of work, but its quality has been highly variable over time. There is an old Italian saying, Il lavoro nobilita l'uomo e lo rende simili alla bestie. And what does that mean, Dan? Oh, in work comes fulfilment, and in fulfilment you might meet your bestie. Work gives man nobility and turns him into an animal. Okay, well, I tried my best, you know. Uh, sorry, what did that mean then? It says, this ironic trope may be a comment on the nature of all work, but it can also be interpreted to mean that work requiring great skills, and that is done freely, refines the complexity of the self, and, on the other hand, that there are few things as entropic as unskilled work done under compulsion. Oh, entropy, one of your favourite topics. And there's also Sigmund Freud quote in here, so should we go to the to daddy of psychoanalysis? Maybe we should wait a moment and just have a little look at that. The, the idea that um, there's two ends to the spectrum, um, and if you look at it in a very black and white way, your work can be a complex... Um, uh, engaging, fulfilling activity, or it can be mind-numbing and mindless and leading to, I'm guessing that's what entropic means, leading to kind of like the, the death of your, your, your own consciousness and, and if we were to take it a bit further, your own um, uh, motivation and enjoyment. Much like walking can be featureless drudgery or a flow activity and therefore this chapter is in no way conceptually revolutionary in the book. It draws on everything that we've learnt so far and just slaps a coating of work all over it. Yeah. Which is, fortunately for you, relatable, accessible uh -huh. uh, for the everyman because, of course, we've, we were talking about this this morning. We have no idea who you are, dear we, listener. We, we have no idea who you are, apart from that one chap who gives us... Uh, great feedback and a couple of people I know who give great feedback um so a handful of you dear listener we know <laughs> but Dan I think you assume that the listener or, we, or you know you describe the listener to me or to the listener you describe the listener to them and the listener can decide how accurate your description of them is I don't understand how I could describe a group of no 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 the listener that's what I'm saying I'm asking you to describe the listener not a group of anything the listener is smart the listener is wise, the listener is uh, an interesting, complex creature. So how come in the last episode, when things got a bit complicated in terms of looking at how psychoanalysis can be both conducive to the conditions of flow, but also a flow experience in itself, you said, I'm not sure this is really accessible to the listener. I'm not sure. I think we're getting a bit loft 
lofty and complicated in the ideas? Can we look at something else that's a bit more accessible to the listener, to the person who's maybe struggling with uh, their ex or their work or just has some issues, some simple issues in their head so that I can be nice agony uncle Dan Instead of having to read Dear Deirdre in the Sun, you can listen to Private Practice Podcast and get some simple advice from Agony Uncle Dan. Does that mean that last time the listener was basic and dim and unable to comprehend complicated subjects and this week they're suddenly a genius or that the listener is just whoever you want them to be at any given time depending on the random thoughts popping into your consciousness? Oh, it's a, it's a very good question, James. Can you, can you give me a moment to, to arrange my thinking of how I answer that? No, I, I think, you know, if we are referring back to that episode, um, I think I was just uh, either obnoxiously not listening to what you were saying and therefore couldn't give you a better answer. So I had to come up with something or other, you know, to, 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 to fill in the gap where a m- more useful and listener-friendly response would have been. Um, I kind of fudged it. I fudged it, James, or potentially your 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 description um, of the psychoanalysis um, side of things in that chapter, the 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 look into the um, process of analysis as a flow activity, um, it just really bored me. I I can't remember, but I'm basically putting the the responsibility on me for a poor response, but also the potential that you had not helped in the setup for that response. Okay, well, I'm going to give my description of the listener and the listener can decide how accurate that is. Mm. I think the listener is a member of the upper-class elite with endless pots of cash that they've inherited from their billionaire parents with unbelievable, stunning good looks that make everyone want to be them, be with them, be under them, be in them have them in them, etc. They are incredibly skilled at... uh, Incredibly intelligent. They've had probably an elitist Oxbridge or Harvard education. At least a red brick, I would have thought. Yes, absolute minimum. But they've also also got... They're not unpleasant. They're they're socialised. They've got a great sense of humour. They're nice and chatty. They're thoughtful. They're... Um, they're calm and enjoyable to be in the company of and so on. That's what I think the listener is. But absolutely privileged and with incomprehensible amounts of uh, money to spend on anything they feel like. I, I can't... Yes, I'm, I feel like you're setting up something here rather than giving a, a genuine uh, description of who you think the listener is. So, go on, I'm, I'm game, carry on. Nope, I wasn't setting anything up. So why are you asking me about the listener and why are you giving a description of a listener oh, okay. you couldn't possibly know? In that, OK, in that case, I am obviously setting something up. Thank you. Because we're about to talk about workers and obviously that uh... can... Uh, so, like, for example, if I say to you, talk about work, if you launch into saying, well, the C- how does the CEO of Google mm-hmm. find... Uh, autotelic experiences in the work and the flow in the workplace that's not accessible and relatable and relevant to the uber driver listening to this podcast thinking oh well if i was 
the CEO of Google with billions of pounds and unbelievable global power, it would be all right for me. But I'm just doing yet another late shift with awful rowdy people being sick in the back of my car because that's the only way I can pay off my exorbitant credit card debt and keep my uh, numerous children in food and clothing through the winter um, without them starving or freezing or whatever to death. It's fine for you to talk about that, but you're not relating to me. Your podcast is irrelevant to me because you're talking about something that is not my life. Whereas if we launch into how do you find flow in your your seeming drudgery of being an Uber driver, whilst the CEO of Google is listening to this thinking, oh, well, this is all very whimsically entertaining and those shambolic idiots with their podcast make me laugh sometimes. No, now they've got a cat. But this business of how to find flow riding around as an Uber driver is never going to be relevant to me at all. Yes. Sorry, is there a question in that? I mean, I, I that was a that was a nice that was a nice middle part from your setup. I'm enjoying it. I'm engaged. We got the CEO. I pictured him. He's most likely white. He's definitely a man. Is he a man, or is it a woman? Is there any difference? Uh, <laughs> can of worms opened. Um, CEO. There he is, Uber driver, there she is. Two ends of the spectrum where it comes to financial gain. Two very different jobs in terms of practically what you're doing. Can I just pause you a minute? There's probably an Uber driver listening thinking, um, excuse me, a a proud Uber driver driver listening thinking, uh, no, I'm not at the bottom. There are plenty of people below me. What do you think is the bottom? Who is the bottom for you, Dan Brown? Who is at the bottom of the rung? So in terms of someone who is working, so not someone homeless. Who's at the bottom of the rung? Yes. Absolute bottom of the hierarchy of um, capitalism. Who? You're pushing me here to give an answer I don't want to give. So um, is, it, is it your cleaner because you have IBS? <laughs> no. I don't know where that spot. Obviously, I know where that came from, but it's been a long time since I've just made a stupid bodily function joke at the expense of the person in the room with me. It hasn't been that long. It's just, <laughs> it's just been a while since you've recorded it on a podcast. So um, who is at the bottom of the ladder financially? Who is at the bottom of the... Like, you were putting a kind of a weird, slightly manipulative twist on that. Like, I was saying that someone at the top of the rung is better than someone at the bottom of the rung. And, I'm that's, not, I'm not and we've been told to stay away from these issues, James, because we don't know enough about them. Yes, we know nothing about habitus or narrativization, so we mustn't talk like we know about that. But um, I wasn't trying to get you into a hole, other than it is inevitable that you will get in a hole when you start to talk about these things. I was asking you to, to consider both financial income, so a low-paid job, but also a low-paid job that is just featureless drudgery, where you don't have responsibility, you don't have challenge, you don't have interest, you don't have social interaction. You literally just put something in a box or... Well, I have a friend who's a grave digger, um, and I thought, you know, I would have thought, obviously I haven't really spent much time, there'd be a lot of drudgery in that, a very repetitive task, probably quite thankless in many ways and not huge amounts of human 
interaction. Um, what, coming out of the coffin? No, d- d- just digging the grave. They're not there for the funeral. They don't, like, dig it just before the coffin goes. <laughs> Still digging it as the hearse arrives. <laughs> and they chuck some mud in the air and it lands in the face of the bereaved husband or wife. Oh, sorry about Spout that. Spout, what do you call them? Widow. Widow, or widower. Yeah. Widow. Um, but he, um, my friend, uh, enjoys it very much so, and I think he's able to gain a sense of... Uh, I think there's a sort of a certain... Um, uh, reward in the physical efforts. There's a certain reward in doing the job properly, and also knowing that you're providing something where you're where you're laying a person to rest. And I think there's something I want to say spiritual, but uh, something important for him in that. Um, and also, he he has time to think. He's out in the fresh air. There's loads of different things. But you know, you might think digging a hole as your job could be at the end of the the, the spectrum that you were forcing me to. Dig a, dig a hole. Dig a hole to describe. And then a, a fudge packer or a hole digger. And then at the other end of the spectrum, what do you think is... I said the CEO of Google because I thought in terms of money and power, that's up there. But what do you think is the ultimate? Because you might think being CEO of Google is so mind-numbingly boring that you don't aspire to it. So what about sort of like, I don't know... Uh, Beyonce, not interested. But no, I, I, no, I'm not. But, but um, I do, I do very much value and respect the complexity of the work that a social worker would do, or, um, of course, you know, um, medics and doctors and l- lawyers and solicitors and teachers. I think all of that is incredibly complex and rewarding, and and can be done to a very very high level, or can be done shoddily depending on how the person engages with the learning of the activity, the practising, the development, the the formation of the ideas that it takes to improve what they're doing, uh, and the commitment, the motivation. So that, those kind of jobs where you're probably engaging with a lot of people, potentially with problems, if you see education as the problem being to teach children or young people or adults or anyone something that they don't yet know and helping them learn and develop themselves or medicine as being how you're helping someone get better or or manage an illness that they they don't yet know how to manage and and social work obviously solving a huge variety of complex difficult problems so that would be at the other end for me not really tech giants although of course computer programmers and and those kind of problem solvers that's probably a pretty fascinating job if you've got the right kind of brain and personality what about creative maybe a musician that you admire who is incredibly successful so not my friend Dave and his band but I'm thinking LCD sound system what's his name James Murphy I think yeah. um so what's the question you're asking me about creative people who do you think has the whatever you want to call it fortune of being well whatever you value so creative good at what they do and a a timeless influential musician someone who is who doesn't have to go and toil in a factory but can just create their divine art for their for the rest of their life and be wealthy hang out at parties with whatever I know you don't like that so whatever it is that to you like for example a musician who gets up on stage 
at the kind of festivals that you go to and like and does an absolutely amazing performance and gives pleasure to the thousands of people in the field in front of them and can go away saying, I just did a good thing and that's all for me. I am the person who created this. And then they go away with the, with the big pot of... or the enough money that they've earned from doing that to live comfortably in a nice place that you would like to live in. I'm not asking you to say that... In terms of, in the context of the private practice podcast and, and psychoanalysis, it's a good thing to compare yourself with others and to say that that person is better than me. I wish I was that person. And for as long as I'm not, I will be depressed. But I'm saying, do you think that person has got it good? Or do you have total indifference to their life and you just want to listen to the music and you don't think about or care about their life? And their job specifically for the context of episode seven, workflow. Am I envious of people who are able to be involved in the creative arts on a performance and development and writing level when I have to go and do the kind of job that I do? Am I envious of them? Is that what you're asking? Just do you think that they are at the opposite end of the scale from the grave digger in the rain digging mud? James, you know that I don't think like that. But am I envious? Yes, I think I would like to perform, but, you know, I'm just not good enough. How does your envy manifest? How do you feel? Um, it's not really something that I engage with anymore, but for a lot of years, I guess it would be... Um, we talked about this before, you know, um, the fantasy of being able to be one of these people that you describe, you know, whether it's someone in a band like you know, LCD or, or an independent artist like David Bowie or one of these people, like the idea that I, I wanted to be there would revolve around a lot of fantasies about trying to get there, there, wherever that is. Um, but now I am way more engaged in, I think, the topic, is, what we're talking about today, the topic of discovering flow in, in the place that you do work no matter where that is, I think I am engaged in that, pushing myself to the uh, to develop and change and grow and improve in whatever it is that I'm doing. And I have, through that process, been fortunate enough to find more and more opportunities to use creativity, but not in a performance way as such, although I do teach and I do lecture and I do develop courses... Um, I've used the ideas from creativity to enjoy what I do. I just got momentarily distracted there, imagining you in the hospital, somehow shoehorning in, growing vegetables and playing drums into your job. <laughs> you would not believe how frequently I do it. <laughs> because you can, you know, you can. You can talk about performance i also managed to show no, i don't mean talk about i mean actually banging drums in a meeting or bringing mud and root vegetables yeah, into no, the hospital that doesn't happen although it could but that's what i was getting distracted by oh well, well you're distracted so you asked a question and didn't listen to the i did listen to the answer and right at the very end i got distracted i'm also engaging you in conversation rather than sticking rigidly to the book we have gone totally off topic so let's wheel it round to the book of flow so i read this chapter you're not going to respond to the question that i've just answered then you're not gonna you know because you you said you're having a conversation but you also told me you got distracted um before responding like you're asking me but why are you asking me 
Uh, why am I asking you what? Why are you asking me whether I um, think that um, those people in the creative industry... David than the Gravedigger or Fudge Packer. Yeah, basically. Because last week, or last episode, we, uh, we, we talked about the, the listener having their own individual level of ability and requiring their own bespoke <laughs> uh, complexity in terms of the intellectual pursuits of using the mind the brain as flow and therefore we danced around the idea that how can we possibly make a podcast for more than one person even though obviously we are giving the pretense that we are just talking to you one person dear listener how could we possibly make a podcast for potentially two listeners if they are both at different levels of cognitive intellectual ability in terms of using their brain to create the conditions of a flow activity such as complicated memory palaces, a lifelong study of philosophy, psychoanalysis, or understanding ideas in psychoanalysis and so on. And that's where we got onto the subject of what I think the listener is, and I jokingly said that they were some ridiculous, ludicrous thing, but if we assume the listener is more intelligent than us, then the whole reluctance you had last week about whether we were going beyond the accessibility of the listener, that's irrelevant to a person more intelligent than us who might be listening. If someone is perpetually listening and they're thick as pig shit, then it's, it's impossible for us to tailor, or it would be very difficult for us to tailor an episode specifically to their challenge needs and still satisfy listener number two who is a, an intellectual academic and understands habitus and narrativization and the same this week as we talk about work it's impossible to tailor this episode or is it it's po potentially impossible to tailor this episode for both james murphy and the grave digger slash fudge packer on that production line in the factory that packs fudge into boxes and sends it off to cute little shops in Cornwall. Okay, so what will we do? Just plough on anyway. So, do you want to explain from your point of view, what is an autotelic worker? Um, an autotelic worker would be someone who is working and, and engaging with the task simply for the sake of that task as I understand it. And therefore an autotelic job? An autotelic job. Um, that's a good question, James. An autotelic job. Um, In the book, the example of an autotelic job is surgery because there are different types of surgery, but it's very much set up to present the conditions of flow, or at least make flow very easy, because there are levels of surgery, so you can adapt to complexity, but there's also, there's always something more complex and a, and a new challenge. But at the same time, you have individual responsibility for what you're doing, you have immediate feedback, you can see if the person is, if, if the situation is improving or getting worse. Um, you work with a team of people around you in perfect harmony if you're way up that complexity ladder 
and therefore you all help each other to achieve goals which benefits the group and makes everyone feel good about it and it's so therefore it's a, to some extent a social interaction um it just it's an example of a job that just makes flow easy like can you achieve flow as a surgeon yes how easy is it very the end therefore surgeon autotelic job whereas a miner deep underground in the pitch black toiling away for 12 hours a day seven days a week being paid nothing etc etc on their own doing hard manual labor say to them how easy is it for you to achieve flow down there impossible no possible yes difficult certainly uh is that an autotelic job no so that's how in the book it's simplified a bit so so the the, the minor the or the manual labor or whatever it is are doing the job for the reward of the money there's no enjoyment in the job just given to them as such well let's get on to the specific example of the book so i would just like to remind the listener that i originally read this chapter lying on the golden sands of the beach uh, near montpellier in the south of france uh-huh. without the burden of a job to take up my time i was just free to uh Uh, indulge in that happy face of leisure time and then I thought that we were going to record this episode today again with me free from the burden of work but I just went mincing into a job this week uh, much to Dan's mild irritation Uh uh-huh it wasn't the only thing that mildly irritated me this week but yes carry on um, because Dad, for the, for the benefit of the listener, Dan was hoping that I would have nothing to do other than help him sort his life out, and I just left him alone to um, fall deeper into the chaos of his own creation whilst I went off to work. Yeah, but just for a clarification, it's not so much my life that's in a mess, it was more my house and my moving house. I very much see the two things as the same, yes. and almost no distinguishment between them whatsoever. Looking around at the chaos, I simply see a representation of your mind. I see um, what do you, tra- the transference of your mind into your possessions. Numerous, cluttered, disorganised, overwhelming, etc. Um, Yet you choose to live here. <laughs> Has anyone ever described you as a cock knocker? <laughs> um, sorry, I digress. Back to the book. So uh, the exa- <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> I'm not going to. I'm not going um, to. I'm not going to actually. You know, do the thing that you don't like, which is say, right. So we're on page one hundred and sixty-three, line forty-seven. I'm going to vaguely remember. Um, sort of like there's an example of someone. I don't know what his name is. Well, let's call this him could be worse. Time. This could be worse. <laughs> He's going to misinterpret through <laughs> lack of clarity um, some of the meaning that uh, Chicks and Michaly tries to give us. Um, yeah, but didn't we call him when we were chatting earlier um, uh, Blue Collar Joe? Does that sound like we are once again assigning ourselves a lofty plateau and talking down to those, whatever they are, habitus narrativized peasants below us? Well, I was wondering, because I've actually worked in a factory. I've... I've I worked in a factory, I did shifts in a factory, I did night shifts in a factory, a shoal factory in Derbyshire. Um, so I'm just wondering whether your mate had ever done that. I'm wondering whether your mate ever had lived on £15 a week. You know. Quite possibly. You're, um, are you assuming he hasn't? I don't you know, I'm wondering, I'm ground. wondering. <laughs> or the lower ground, whatever it is in the hierarchy. Or was it £47 a week? But whatever, it was a small amount of money a week. 
Okay, so and then I got the job, you see. So then loads of money. They actually pay you quite a lot of money to work in that shawl factory. So I'm happy to talk down to Blue Collar Joe. He works in a factory and he... <laughs> Do you have to talk down to Blue Collar Joe? Blue Collar Joe works hard for his money. So hard for his money, you know? To bring it home. It doesn't matter if I'm talking up to, in line with, or down to. The fact is that Joe it works in a factory... Uh, doing something that most people consider menial, like uh, he knocks a sprocket into a. Well, should we say what I did at the? At yes. the so at the Shoal factory, you had a moving conveyor, conveyor belt in front of you. You had three people to your right, three people, four people opposite you, and the the conveyor belt just kept going. And as the product on the conveyor belt went went past me, and it'd be something like either corn pads for your feet or plasters for the back of your. Uh, your Achilles heel, you know, these kind of little foot products. You would turn to your left, you would take out a box, you would squish it, you would fold it, you would, like, turn it from a flat-packed box into a small box, and you would pick up whatever was going past you uh, on the conveyor belt, so it might be one, two, or three per box, put it in the box, and then put the box back on the conveyor belt. The next person might pick that up, check it, and then finish off the box and throw it into... A bigger box, then someone would come and wheel that way and turn that those sort of d- d- multitude of boxes into a nice smartly packed box, which would go on another conveyor belt, which someone would check. And so, so that's what I did, and it'd be eight-hour shift with two fifteen-minute breaks and maybe a thirty-minute lunch break or something. I didn't even know people did that. That they, was just not presented to me in my uh, in my school. We were just told, well, you can your best options are to be a high-flying lawyer or um, just use, just dust around spending mummy and daddy's money from your yacht that's that's all that's what my careers advisor told me in my school pretty good advice <laughs> but yeah yeah no and and you know the people like i said it was in derbyshire but people that i spoke to there which always baffled me um being of the you know the billionaire boys club myself um said that they were going to work there for 30 years and then retire they knew it at 18 19 20 21 22 23 like this sort of age they knew they were going to work there for 30 years and then retire. They made their mind up at that stage. That's what they were going to do. And they sat there. They were so much faster than me. You know, I was the slow one on this production line, obviously. I was shit at it. I could not believe that anyone would do this job or even think to do it for more than whatever it was, three months I did it, something like that. How did you feel at the time and has that changed looking back in retrospect about how you feel about the job? The actual job itself, no, I would never want to do that again. I'm massively impressed that anyone would be able to do that. But I always find it incredibly sad that that would be the extent of someone's working life. That that... Well, that perfectly leads us into Average Joe. So we're appropriating him from the example in the book to the Shoal Factory in Derby. Imagine he... Blue Collar Joe, not Average Joe. Okay, Blue Collar Joe. He is putting the foot product into a box... And he spends his time in that role trying to improve everything he does. So being the quickest without diminishing the quality of what he's doing at all, looking for small improvements, learning as much as possible about the process. So specifically, if anything goes wrong, let's say the conveyor belt stops working, he is so invested in his job that he has learnt how the conveyor belt works from studying it on the job or on his break or something, that he is he can fix it because he understands the conveyor belt. So he adds value beyond his job description. 
etc etc and he enjoys all of that he likes the fact that when something goes wrong he can fix it and they can get back to their toil as quickly and as efficiently as, as possible because he has given himself the responsibility to improve the efficiency without anyone having to tell him to do so or insisting it's part of his job description and he's not going to be paid any extra for it. So I've maybe got an example where I can relate to that. So in making the little boxes, there is a way you can do it that the box would end up not looking shop ready, but there's also a way you could do it where the box would be immaculate. And so that's a challenge in itself. So day one, hour one, if I remember right, I was throwing boxes back onto the conveyor belt and the woman, whatever, next to me would look at me like, what what have you just thrown on the conveyor belt? And I'd look at her, you know, because I'd be appalled at myself. I don't want to do something badly. And so I would learn by watching the woman to the right of me how... She pushes it, and and if I remember right, she, one of them were, one of them had a glove on or something. So I knew that you could get a glove that would grip the boxes better, and so I got a glove that would grip the box better. And another thing would be you can push down the box in a certain way in, with one hand that almost puts it into the right position to, with your other hand, fold in the three strips of um, plasters or whatever it was you were doing. So there's that the idea that oh you could keep on learning to do this very repetitive but very fast thing. And you do better. that on your own because you, no one's, no supervisor is telling oh, you you no. have to do that or else you'll be fired and you're not being paid extra to no. do it better, etc. You just take that responsibility yourself. Yeah. Um, before I read my favourite bit of the book, the extension of this is that Blue Collar Joe is similar in his leisure time. So instead of going home, watching TV, drinking beer, getting drunk, living your life, <laughs> I don't know why suddenly when we're in the same room it seems funny without thinking to just throw insults at you. So he's doing this menial job or he's doing this job that doesn't seem aspirational. He's packing the corn pads into boxes on a factory line all day long. When he clocks out of that factory... Instead of going to the pub and drinking alcohol, instead of going home and watching TV, instead of doing all that kind of mind-numbing relaxation, mm -hmm. he would go home and challenge himself to create a very specific water feature in his garden. So it's difficult, this example, because it's a great example, but it's the kind of thing that anyone listening to this might think, what? Huh? Who does that? What? Why are you saying this? This is weird. What's this? But he creates rainbow fountains in his garden and he challenges himself to create the most complex, complicated and, to him, stunningly realised rainbow fountains in his garden. And the fact that he arrives home from work quite late and when it's probably already gone dark, he incorporates complex light displays so that they still work after the sun has set whilst he was toiling away in the factory putting corn pads into boxes and yet when he returns home in the dark he can still see the fruits of his leisure time labour these wonderfully spectacular fountain displays in a normal plot of land in a normal humble blue collar house in a normal humble district of a, an average town like Derby uh, 
even when it's dark, he can still see the fruits of his uncalled for toil and labour in his leisure time because there's a light display that goes with the water. And he gets, he, he, it goes into detail in the book of how he studies the way that the mist can, and the light can combine to create complex rainbows with science and physics in the air, in his garden. He works it all out himself and he does it without anyone asking him to and without any reward other than for himself to know that he's done it and to have gone through the process. He does that and he creates these rainbow fountains in his garden. So he's having flow in work, toiling away in what seems to some people like a menial, unrewarding job. And he's going away from his, he's cocking out of his job, his low paid job, and he is not having, he's not going to the pub, he's not watching TV or doing the things that most people think he probably deserves after, I'm subjectively, maybe he deserves after toiling away in that meaningless job, surely he then deserves to go to the pub and have a drink, surely he then deserves to put his feet up and watch TV, no, he creates weirdly complex rainbow fountains that he can see in the dark because that's the only chance he has in his free time not toiling away in the factory. And in the book, um, because forgive me, I did not reread the chapter. Um, I've had many things to do, and no one here to help me do it. Um, uh, that's not actually true. Uh, I had my other half helping me brilliantly. Um, in the book, is um, is the author suggesting that this is a real person from one of their case studies? Yes. Ah, yes, yes, okay. That... I'm not making this up. It's, this isn't some made-up example that's weird, unrelatable, strange. It's a real person. This actually happened. A those, real person. Those rainbow fountains have sprayed and are maybe still spraying today. Somewhere in America, not Derby. So, so tell us, what, 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 was, what did you get from this? What, what, is it that, what, what are the um, take-home messages? What are the headlines? Well, this is exactly the bit that I want. I've written at the top of page 149. This is the best page of the book. So forget that sexy page. Okay, give us a mo. Give yourself a moment. Take a breath. And uh, this is the best page of the book. Yes. Listener, sit down, get comfortable. If you're doing something else, just for a moment, engage in this. This is, so far, the best page of the book. What page is it, James? 149. 149. And now take a breath and off you go. One might argue here that endorsing Joe's lifestyle over that of his fellow workers is reprehensibly elitist. After all, the guys in the saloon are having a good time, and who is to say that grubbing away in the backyard making rainbows is a better way to spend one's time? By the tenets of cultural relativism, the criticism would be justifiable, of course. This is good, this is good. By the tenets of... What? Sorry. <laughs> cultural relativism, the criticism would be justifiable. So, everything is relative, and to say that Joe's lifestyle is better than someone who finishes that job, the same job and goes to the pub and has beer or goes home and watches TV, who is to say that that is better? Everything is relative. You can't just say that this is the case for all things and we don't need to look at everyone's lived experience 
in isolation. We can just generalize for everyone and say Joe is better. Everyone else in his factory has got it wrong. OK, we can't do that and we're not doing that. Because, because it's elitist. OK. That's what is suggested, is accepted as normal in society. Cultural relativism gets the dominant thumbs up <coughs> and that it's generally considered elitist to say Joe right, everyone else wrong. However, this is why I like this page. Good. But when one understands that enjoyment depends on increasing complexity, it is no longer possible to take such radical relativism seriously. The quality of experience of people who play with and transform the opportunities in their surroundings, as Joe did, is clearly more developed as well as more enjoyable than that of people who resign themselves to live within the constraints of the barren reality they feel they cannot alter. So Michele Chitson Michele says, stuff your cultural relativism. I am right and you are wrong. It is objective as outlined repetitively in my classic work on how to achieve happiness. Wow. Okay. Um, I'm going to need a moment to just think about how our little podcast here and our recent feedback can be integrated to allow me to continue. Can I agree with Chitzen Mikkeli in, in his bold, uh, almost obnoxious, brassy, s strong statement here that it's, it is okay for us as readers and, in a way, um, advocates of flow to say, nah, work in a factory, but if you're not engaging in flow... You've got it wrong. You're not living life to the fullest. Because that's sort of what he's saying. He's not saying you got it wrong. He's saying you're not, you're not experiencing factory saying... work to, the, to, it, to give you the most fulfilment and the most enjoyment. He is saying Joe is better. He's saying Joe is better. Objectively better. Or at least he is better at making his... His life is better, and he, is, he has taken personal responsibility for that. Yeah, well, I mean, how, though, do you then measure... But Sorry, his life is objectively better. Not, this is no-one's opinion. It is fact that this is the crucial thing. Chitson Mickley is saying that it is objective fact that Joe's life is better as a result of him taking personal responsibility for creating flow both in work and in his leisure time and all the other people who have not done that in either their work or their leisure time are whatever insert the word worse I'm going to use the word worse yeah I think that's inflammatory but um, I'd be really interested to know what um, listener feedback we get over this, this is... <laughs> This is a very interesting topic. I mean, from my pillar of middle-class privilege, um, I'd agree, you know, the, the more fulfilling your life is, the more enjoyment you can get out of it that engages the mind and engages the body as well, is, um, is an improved life. And this takes us back to the controversial thing that I've said many times, which is that I don't think flow is just the uh, nice pursuit of the middle class who have enough spare time and resources to invest into it 
average Joe, the factory worker. In, in reality, Joe was a welder, by the way, for anyone who's interested. Um, he wasn't putting corn pads into boxes. He was welding in a factory that was very hot in summer, very cold in winter, very harsh conditions, but he was a welder. He is blue collar Joe and he has found flow. He's not the dispossessed at the bottom of the hierarchy where flow is not possible. It's only for the likes of privileged millennials in London with their iPhones and their stuff. Loft apartments. Yeah. Average Joe found flow. Average Joe found flow. No, blue-collar Joe. I don't like okay. this word, average. Blue-collar Joe found flow and is held up as the example of why it's not elitist to say that he is better than all the other welders in the, the same factory who binge on... It wouldn't have been Netflix at the time, but that's what we'll call it now, and drink cans of beer after work. Yeah. How common. <laughs> but um, but it, uh, we are... Presenting this topic and this book for the listener to engage with if they wish. We're not suggesting that... They will the, be better. <laughs> they are better people than the Joes of the world who are going to the pub and, and watching Netflix. Because I do both of those things as well. Can you flow at the pub? Yes, in conversation. So, but that requires you putting in the effort. Flow just doesn't flow. We've we had the whole singing. Flow is a doing word. Flow is not something that just happens to you by accident. Which is what you, lazy Dan Brown. I'm just okay. I'm gonna go with this. You, lazy Dan Brown. I think it would be it would be right up your alley if flow is something that just happened to you. And if you could just sit on the sofa, uh, stroking the cat, oh. smoking your e-cig watching trashy TV shows in the background, drinking alcohol, and your, your own sense of personal specialness that, unlike everyone else, you're actually more creative and more brilliant on alcohol, with your own sense of personal specialness that that's the case. Not only that, but in that process, you can also achieve flow, and it just happens to you. And you feel like the, 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 that it's not just laziness and lack of effort. It's the fact that you have persisted on this planet for 40, for 40 years and put in a lot of mental energy into those 40 years and you are being justly rewarded with flow on that sofa. That's what, that would be ideal for you, wouldn't it? <laughs> it would. It would, James. But that's not the reality. Wouldn't it be ideal for everyone, though? Nope. I think that when I sat around waiting for flow to happen, I was constantly treading in low-level dissatisfaction. And when I started making it happen myself over the past year, I realised just how high I could get off flow. And now I feel great and I feel happy all the time. And it's a result of me putting in the work. And I feel even more superior than ever. And the listener loves it, don't you? <laughs> so, so soaring around up there, James, in those lofty heights, are you suggesting that you wouldn't have preferred it if Flo took no effort? Absolutely. I don't believe that you can get any satisfaction out of not putting effort into something. Things that just conveniently happen to you, I would say never or close to never provide satisfaction. If you inherit, if you inherit money, if you are 
um, living in some fantastic place that you didn't have to build or you didn't have to work to earn the money, um, if you just have a privileged life, it doesn't come with the satisfaction of having worked for it. Or put in the effort. I don't, and by work, I don't mean relentless drudgery and toil uh, through harsh conditions uh, leading to huge detrimental effects in terms of physical and mental health. I mean work as in output from the self to then be rewarded as a consequence, as a direct consequence. The individual taking responsibility for their own output for the long term so that they can enjoy the rewards of it. I think those rewards are, I can't say absolutely 100% for sure, but I think those rewards are almost always enjoyable and the rewards that require nothing of the individual are almost never enjoyable. I see. And do you do you think that for yourself you only engage in these uh, activities and pursuits that have that reward, or is there any time where you're you're doing the Dan Brown version, sitting on the sofa, saying with his with his booze, saying, mm, "Look at my incredible flow. Aren't I the best?" What have I ever found myself doing that? Yeah. Do you do that at all? Well, you just constant, you just constant flow nowadays, are you, James? Well, it wouldn't matter if I was in constant flow or not. It depends on whether I've put in the effort for that flow to happen or whether it just accidentally happened and I'm thinking, phew, got away with that one. Um, accidental flow. I can't remember an example off the top of my head of accidental flow and therefore I probably didn't enjoy it enough because it's not very memorable. I see, okay. I love a sentence that starts, with all due respect to the Bible, however, it does not seem to be true that... <laughs> but what? Wait, stop, stop. So let's, let's start that again. With all due respect to the Bible, however... It does not seem to be true that work... So basically, we've got to... The, on page 145, so I'm going back a bit now, uh, Chitson Mickley uh, finally gets to the bit where he... Where he does put himself higher up in the achievement hierarchy than Jesus, God, or... Oh, thank goodness, thank goodness. Uh, finally, Mickley has found his plateau. Uh, he says, It does not seem to be true that work necessarily needs to be unpleasant. It may always have to be hard, or at least harder than doing nothing at all, but there is ample evidence that work can be enjoyable and that indeed it is often the most enjoyable part of life. Um, I don't think we should necessarily have a conversation about universal basic income, but that's relevant. The, the listener can go off and listen to someone else talking about that. That's actually quite a hot topic nowadays, isn't it? Universal basic income. I, <laughs> I, I thought that the basic argument is that it gives the very, a very basic level playing field to the most vulnerable, even if it can't elevate their opportunities and chances higher than the most basic opportunity to feed, clothe, protect themselves, look after themselves, and then an opportunity to perhaps to find work or education or something. I don't think it's obvious how universal basic income would play out, whether it would be a good thing, a neutral thing, or a bad thing. And I have not prepared arguments for this podcast, which is why I brushed over it, but I did mention it because it's too relevant, I think, for this 
conversation to just not mention it. And like you say, many other podcasts discuss it in detail. Yes. If it gets closer to seeming likely, I will happily talk about it. For now, it's an abstract thing Mm -hmm. along with many other ideas. And seeing as it's basically about... Yeah, it's just it's an, it's a, no. I don't need to. It's an abstract thing I th- at the moment. Uh-huh. Michele Chits and Mich- <laughs> the book carries on with a comparison of the origins of Eastern flow versus Western flow. I mean, you can read that for yourself. It then talks about the uh, game changer of the Industrial Revolution, how people used to find flow in work. So, for example a family who would create fabrics, this is one of the examples in the books, would easily find flow at work because um, they would be responsible as a small family unit. They would help each other out. They would raise the complexity as and when it was appropriate. So if they were sick of just the toil of producing exactly the same fabric, they would try and create a more complex fabric. They would travel the world to find the latest machinery, which was an enjoyable thing to bring back to improve their working conditions. They would sell their fabrics around the world and interact with the people who bought them and so on. The the conditions of flow were there. And then suddenly the Industrial Revolution arrives and presents a machine that creates the same quality fabrics in whatever, half the time, and most of them are made redundant and so on. And they end up working for maybe, let's say, for the factory that makes the machine. And instead of having that autotelic work experience, they're now just putting a sprocket into a gizmo, into a gizmo on a production line. And they're doing it for 14 hours a day and being paid next to nothing by an, a, a dictatorial overlord who hits them with a wooden cane if they don't do it quick enough or good enough. And there is no such thing as quick enough or good enough for his unrealistic expectations. Yes. So that's, that's a, a cartoon summary of the Industrial Revolution, which has come and gone. And now, in the new decade, 2020, obviously this book was written in the 80s, but some things are still the same, it suggests that those of us nowadays who work in an office without um, the toil of the conditions of a welder in a factory or whatever, um, supposedly have it good. Uh Um, I don't agree with that because I think that the first thing that comes to my mind about the conditions of work today working in an office in London doing some kind of service industry job is that people work for too long and roles are too specific with not enough variety and in general people don't have enough personal responsibility there's usually a supervisor beating a metaphorical stick over their shoulder Mm -hmm. or a boss who doesn't trust the employees and doesn't well, give them plenty of that in all the workplaces yes that's what comes to my mind about the modern day conditions of work yeah we've got a good example where i work and this is this is this is just about culture rather than about uh criticizing i think anyone is we have very specific policies written policies to to give um the workforce the office-based workforce and the management-based workforce, flexibility to work wherever. We have um, sort of doubling encrypted 4G 
laptops and mobile phones with access to very, very fast internet, good communication tools, the ability to work anywhere, yet right across the organisation, those who are more used to the older ways of working, you know, having an office, sitting at a desk, being with your team, um, do not trust the younger workforce to engage with the activities, you know, in their own home or in a coffee shop, if that's appropriate, or at a library or at, at another organisation so that the, you know, the communication barriers and the the distance can be broken down so that you can do things more rapidly, you can do things cheaper, you can do things more effectively. We have actual policies there to tell us to do it and then actual people beating that metaphorical stick saying, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? Where were you? What, you know... Uh, stopping therefore the development and the improvement and the 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 productivity and the enjoyment and the individual responsibility yeah whereas i'm incredibly lucky to have two managers who 100% support that creative flexible um smarter way of working uh, i'm very very lucky but i see people all across the organisation being almost paranoid and worried and concerned that if they were to actually live the policy and work in this flexible enjoyable um way um they would be reprimanded or criticized or questioned um so yeah it's uh i i see what you mean that it's still there but enjoying work so what about you do you enjoy work is your work autotelic it it, it wasn't really before I left London and yet I have a direct comparison because I'm now doing something that I did before when I was um, generally uh, experiencing low-level dissatisfaction in all aspects of life and now flowing James has come back from teaching in uh, France and Spain and it's, it's too early to say I've been doing this for a week but um, it's easy to see how I can achieve flow in the same job that used to carry what I thought were inherent frustrations, which I'm glad you asked me that question because it nicely leads on to the next bit. The uh, who is to blame? Uh, well, it's not actually the next bit, but this is the bit that leads on to the question that, from the question you just asked. So who is to blame for dissatisfaction at work so let's say you work in forget the we've given enough of this podcast to the factory worker so we're now in the office in london paris new york milan barcelona one of these fancy pants cities and you're a fancy pants millennial in your fancy pants office or whatever uh-huh. but something like that and you feel like your job doesn't do it for you in whatever way and you live for the weekend and you only really have a life outside of work and that's whatever it may be but that your leisure you value your leisure time and you literally just go into work to pay for it you're just in that office to pay your rent you do whatever it and you don't feel satisfaction because all you feel like is that you're just doing something someone has told you to do to make money for them and success and glory and whatever it is for them (laughs) and all you get out of it is just about enough money to cover your expensive rent and 
and your unnecessary Uber and alcohol and Netflix bills. You feel like the job is inherently... What's the word for something that doesn't provide conditions of flow? Your job... You... Degrading, problematic, run-of-the-mill, rat race, these kind of things. You feel like you can't create flow in your job. Where is the opportunity for flow? All you're doing is shoving money into someone else's pocket, doing something you don't care about. Or you, maybe you went to university with <clears throat> dreams of what you wanted to achieve in life and then were faced with the reality of living in London and all the practicalities and you've tried a few jobs and all of them you've come to the realisation that in, a, in, in, a, in our current modern capitalist society, whatever your role is, no matter how seemingly creative it is, no matter what supposed status is associated with it, whatever it is, it's ultimately just shoving money into the pockets of some someone way further up the hierarchy than you and you don't get the reward or the enjoyment or the status or whatever. Along with it are endless irritations of the passive-aggressive notes on the fridge or the person who always gets in five minutes earlier than you and makes you look like you're bad or whatever. The, 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 the other Office politics. Office politics. Um, lack of fulfilment, uh, lack of whatever it is that you're looking for in life. You don't get it in work. You're just shoving money into someone else's pocket and waiting for the time when you can get out of there and actually live your life. Uh-huh. That person, might they blame though the office politics and capitalism or just the job itself or the, the boss or whatever to say that there is no potential for flow in that role and therefore they just have to toil away until they can live their life in leisure time. Therefore work equals unhappy slash crying face and leisure time equals happy face. They might. It, it depends. There's a, there was a theory and I, I don't know who to um, ascribe it to uh, called the internal or external locus of control. Um, we use it in healthcare to think do you go to the NHS because they should get you better or do you look at all the options yourself and all the things that you can do and all the responsibility that you have for your health and well-being and start there but with access to some of the services or the treatments or the what activities you might need in order to be more well or, or to be better or to manage your condition. If you have an internal locus of control, you'll be the person doing it you take responsibility as an individual. If you have an external locus of control, you'd be asking, why isn't the doctor getting me better? And why aren't the nurses looking after me properly? And, and why have I got this condition because of all these things that I am not in control of? So that, I guess, would apply to this as well. Um, and and sometimes there's also got to be an acceptance that sometimes work can be both. It can have repetitive, monotonous... Um, seemingly non-flow activities that you would have to learn and teach yourself to enjoy, get pleasure from, engage with, um, uh, improve at, and also opportunities where flow is more obviously an, an available um, experience. But um, if you're asking me, uh, I can get flow at work 70-90% of the time. How do you feel about your job? Do you, are you doing the job that you wanted to do and do you enjoy it and all that sort of stuff? Yes, I love my job. I'm getting very close to 
being able to manage myself, to being able to be autonomous in what I do, being able to engage and enjoy with the more monotonous activities because I know that they are part of a flow towards something that is more enjoyable, running a course, setting up a new program, um, um, writing something from, from what we've done. But there's definitely a process going from more obvious flow opportunity to the less obvious opportunities you have when you're learning, when you're starting off in my role in, in healthcare. But what did you always want to do that? Or is this just the failed drummer thinking, what can I, how can I make the best of my failure? Like, I wanted to just live my life getting the applause at Glastonbury. That didn't work out. What can I do? I don't know. What's my best ch- chance? Maybe something in the NHS. I'm quite good. I'm quite empathetic and I, I could probably be quite good at something in that. I'll make the best of this because drumming failed. Obviously, I'm caricaturing you to, to simplify the situation and to provoke a reaction, but... Well, it would be your choice or my choice to think of it one way or the other. Um, and then, you know, I could think about it like that if my mood was low or if I'd had a particularly... Um, no, I mean, did you think about it like that at the time when you got into the NHS? Definitely. Okay. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, or the idea that if I carry on thinking of the fantasy of playing at Glastonbury, probably not the main stage, let's be realistic, um, but playing on one of the smaller stages and being able to earn a living from being a successful and popular musician. Um, for a long time, when I began in healthcare, I would have continue to maintain that fantasy as a possibility and nowadays I almost never think of that uh, the, in fact the, the occasion will arise soon where I'll be able to play the drums for the fun of it again I'm playing with the band and and that experience now isn't for the idea you know playing with a band now isn't to um, get on the stage on a stage at Glastonbury it is simply because I enjoyed playing the drums and relatively good at it and it, it doesn't even interact with my thoughts and feelings about my job all week it's got nothing to do with that it's got nothing to do with who I am really uh, in terms of my work has it's not it's not a, a potential escape pod or get out clause it is something that I enjoy for the sake of doing it as well as enjoying my job most of the time for the sake of doing it hmm Okay, well, with in the moment, off the cuff, unprepared, I will try and give a very brief and concise contrast between how I used to feel in work and how I feel now without feeling like everyone, or sorry, without feeling like you, the listener, needs to know every bit of context from 1987 to the present day. I'm giving you one minute and 15 seconds to do that. Go. Okay, so I think that as an only child, I had a lot of personal specialness and I thought I was going to do great things. The megalomaniac child, I've talked about it before. I therefore had high expectations for my life as creating fulfilling creative achievement, uh, being whatever, a painter, an editor of a magazine, an architect, a a planner of great utopian uh, cities, whatever. I was just a designer of products, a designer of something great with a lot of uh, um, self-fulfillment that I had done great work and a lot of external applause. I would get lots of people would be 
rightly clapping their hands and going, Jess James, you are special, you're so creative, you're so wonderful, you're so brilliant. Just like my parents told me as a divine only child with no sibling rivalry and not much interaction with other people in general. Then... What hit was the realisation that when I graduated, I was basically unemployable with kind of irrelevant, vaguely media degrees that the world didn't need. Uh, I didn't understand empathy or how to interact with other people, so I was absolutely hopeless in interviews. And when I did get anywhere, I realised that I'm not as special as I thought I was or that I didn't understand other people. I didn't really know what was required of me. I was totally disenfranchised with the world. And how could I possibly in any job, achieve any kind of enjoyment out of just funneling money into people that I objectively didn't like because I thought they were all uh, conspiratorial capitalist overlords looking to ruin my life and everything was unfair and it was all everyone else's fault and the world was bad and I couldn't solve it, so what do I do? I don't want to commit suicide, but it's very hard for me to find my place in it, so this is just a relentless sequence of events that will not satisfy me and I'm disillusioned for life and therefore you can understand why I had a lot of uh, underlying resentment and disillusionment and dissatisfaction for the, the years when I had successfully done what I wanted in my to some extent in my personal life at the time I had, I had goals at the time and I'd met them in other words I'd start. I'd come to London with virtually no social life, and I'd built one up. Whereas career-wise, all I'd done was think, "Few, I've managed to earn a living," as opposed to, "Yes, I am that uh, magazine editor, car designer, whatever you know, product, whatever it is that I wanted to be." The, the many things: the, the artist, the architect, the, the film writer, the the, or the playwright, the the creative director of a theatre, everything, or the yes. the the radio presenter, producer, the, the uh, winning scriptwriter, everything, all the things that I thought would inevitably happen to special me with my personal specialness that the world would recognise and reward without me having to put in any effort. This goes back to what we because it's inherent yes. in who James Hall is. But I thought I could just sit on the sofa and, it, and be creative and be a genius, and everyone would recognise it and reward me. And, and and so all of that and, and so how could I ever find flow in work when I was resentful and ready to blame anyone at a drop of a hat? Well, you couldn't because it it was an external locus of control. It it, it, it was the idea that you had no control over that fulfilment and enjoyment. And if we refer back to the cover, your of the book, your own happiness, you had no control over it. And so when I was in Paris, not only had I had my month in Montpellier to dive into the subconscious, not only had I read um, great chunks of the Book of Flow, but I suddenly had personal responsibility where I was going to uh, apartments and teaching uh, students of different ages and abilities and with no training and no specific curriculum and no textbook or anything I had to work out how to get them to pass their English exams at the end of the year and to interact with them on a personal basis because every student was an individual with a different personality and temperament and so on and I as we know I thoroughly enjoyed it and I achieved flow in work for the first time it was the first time I'd really enjoyed a job all the time with the exception of the times when the challenge was greater than my ability and there was a lot of anxiety and I thought I'm just standing in front of a class of kids and I 
do not know how to get them to stop throwing things, talking, and how do I get them to listen to me and do stuff because they're certainly not doing that now <laughs> and haven't been for the last 30 minutes of a 45-minute lesson. Yes, you've experienced the whole of that graph, uh, that flow graph we talked about in episode one, I think it was, or perhaps episode two. So now I am in the situation of wanting to try... Going, well, this is why I've come back to... This is one of the reasons I've come back to London to see if I can do some kind of office-based design job that I had come to think was inevitably, uh, inherently featureless drudgery. And can I... Like I had turned walking into a flow activity from featureless drudgery, can I turn a graphic design job from featureless drudgery of just staring at a computer screen, clicking a mouse and funneling money into someone else's pocket and just taking a, you know, a modest cut of it as my salary. Can I not have that approach and find flow in that situation so that I can be in London where I have built up as, as, as some form of social life that I find enjoyable? And although that did take you six minutes... What I'd like to say is to the listener here at this this perfect moment to summarise this episode and to, to 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 put the challenge back out there to whoever you are, listener, whether you are the billionaire boys club member or whether you are blue collar Joe, we put the challenge out there to you to try and find flow in work because it's the place we spend the most amount of time other than potentially asleep so flow is accessible in almost any environment but it's about taking an internal sense of control and an internal sense of responsibility and looking for the smallest opportunities which can develop into larger opportunities to develop and to challenge yourself in what you're doing and and how you're doing it um it's allowing yourself to have an internal um, dialogue with yourself about how to achieve that and to watch this space to find out whether James does achieve that in his new yet old job back in London. And you will find that out here first on the Private Practice Podcast. Let's not forget that... It is basically a fact, it is objective truth, according to the book, that the individual takes responsibility to create flow and no one else is to blame and the world is not to blame. So when I've been asking the question, who is to blame, the answer is yourself. And when I've said, can I find flow, the answer is, yes, I can. The, the, more, the, the question of where the answer is open to possibility is, will I be able to? So it is my own personal responsibility to to try and find flow in whatever I do over the, in the foreseeable future mm -hmm. um, and how I go about doing it because the book suggests that, yes, unless, maybe, unless, the, the, unless you, you sort of like, in terms of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, unless you're sort of like dehydrated, hungry, fr freezing cold... Uh, and in pain, physical pain, in the workplace, as long as those things are not the case, as long as you're 
generally okay. Yes, it is objectively true and not elitist to say that you have the responsibility to find that flow. It is inevitably available to you, no matter what your job, no matter who you are. And cultural relativism is a load of poppycock. And on that bombshell, let's say... We hope you accept the challenge and we will see you next time on Private Practice Podcast Season Flow. Can I just shove in a vital component that we haven't, that I, that's on my list, so after, after your goodbye, before my goodbye, between yours and mine, which is the paradox of work, a whole chunk of, the, probably the biggest chunk of this chapter that I did want to talk about. Um, but we have kind of, we kind of have, but only brushing over it. But, um, the paradox of work is that, sorry, I just said the paradox of flow. The paradox of work is people spend most of their time at work and most of their flow experiences come from work. So most of the time that they have challenges and they meet them and they get enjoyment from that and they increase the complexity and they use their mind and their senses and so on to achieve flow. Most of the time people do that is at work. And yet when questioned in the research in this book, generally people record unhappy face during work. Whereas in leisure time, that chaos, in fact, I think I might... You have actually already said all of this. Slightly move the cat. To no, because because there's there's a bit that I haven't said, which is this. I said it to you earlier today, but not on the podcast. Um, the the baggy, formless um, uh, jelly of your free time um, in that condition, where unstructured, not je- the, the unstructured bagginess of free time, w- without. Uh, rules, feedback, all the conditions of flow, where your your human sort of like pleasure principle, whereby all humans are just robots seeking maximum pleasure for themselves at all times, generally leads you to the alcohol, the screen and the sofa. It does. And people tend to say that they feel passive, weak, dull and dissatisfied uh-huh. in that context and, and that is their leisure time leading not to flow but to not flow and yet when asked people record happy face in leisure time they live for the weekend they look forward to going home and watching whatever the next episode of whatever on netflix they can't wait to open the bottle or the can of whatever and they think that that is the good thing and that work is the bad thing very interesting anyway Let's see if we get any feedback about today's episode. And for now, it's goodbye from me, Daniel P. Brown. Free time is unstructured and requires much greater effort to be shaped into something that can be enjoyed. We'll come back to that. It's goodbye from me, James Hall, in the London Private Practice Studio. And should we get the cat to say goodbye? It didn't say hello, so notice I say it. You'd probably say she, wouldn't you? She's just sleeping at the moment. It didn't say hello, so it doesn't need to say goodbye. Goodbye. (laughs) (laughs) It's a wonderful story.